The New Testament text is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And when he had returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed which, on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they all were amazed, all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We, have, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there, there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I imagine for a number of you, the psalm that was read, Psalm 51, is familiar. Uh, and I'm also uh, of the opinion that, uh, that uh, the two uh, stories that I read to you from Mark chapter 2 are also familiar. But if you're not familiar with these stories, welcome to some great stories. Um, that first story, I think one of the things we see with that episode, with the men carrying the paralytic who can't get close enough to Jesus to get his attention and who resort to some rather extreme measures to get into his presence demonstrate to us that uh, persistence is a virtue and it actually pleases God. Uh, they found a way to get the paralytic to Jesus. And when they do so, uh, Jesus commends their faith because of the efforts that they uh, employed to, to uh, get that paralytic before him, you know, literally tearing open the roof so they could lower the paralytic into the presence of Jesus. I gotta confess, I've often wondered what the homeowner thought. Um, we're not told, but it's not difficult to imagine that he probably wasn't all that pleased with the, 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 
the tactics or the, the, the method with which they uh, were able to achieve their goal. But anyway, uh, he does get into the presence of the Lord. And because of the commendation that the Lord uh, pronounces when he you know, says to him uh, what he does say, and the basis for that commendation, being able to see their faith, it reminded me of the fact that throughout Scripture, persistence is something that God cherishes. Do you remember the, 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 the parable of the persistent widow? <clears throat> In that parable, Jesus says to his disciples, there was once a woman who sought justice, and because she couldn't get it, uh, she just kept bugging the judge. She would just show up every day and bring her case before the judge, and finally the judge relented and said, <laughs> this woman is never going to give up. I might as well give her what she wants and just send her home. And Jesus says to his disciples that uh, this judge, being wicked or unjust, uh, giving her what she looked for, what should we conclude when it comes to persistence and coming before God? We should conclude that we're going to get God's attention and that we're going to get a response. And that's evidence of faith and is a good thing. I'm also remembered of uh, Jacob the wrestler. Jacob, who is uh, the brother of Esau, uh, Esau, by the way, and Jacob were twins, and they wrestled. Uh, throughout the course of their lives, they wrestled. They even began wrestling in the womb, if you recall, uh, in, in, in sort of the account of, of the, you know, their interaction with each other in the womb. They're wrestling within their mother, and she's obviously distressed. And then, uh, you know, Esau is born first, but uh, he's uh, Jacob has his hand on his brother's heel, saying, in effect, get back here. I want to get out first. And then from that point on, it's a contest. And Jacob wrestles with his brother, prevails uh, in different, with uh, different episodes that we, we uh, see with regard to him and his interactions with his father and his mother and his brother. He wrestles with his father. Uh, and then uh, after you know, the, bo the boys go their separate ways, uh, and they're brought back together again, and Jacob is dreading uh, his encounter with his older brother. Um, he wrestles with an angel. And uh, in that encounter with that angel, he says to the angel, I won't let you go until you bless me. And then he's blessed. He's given a new name, and his hip is pulled out of joint. And uh, I guess that's a blessing. Uh, and something to be sort of reflected upon as we think about what it means to be blessed by God. But he was a wrestler. I think sometimes we think of Jacob as, as a guy who uh, was, because uh, he was not as physically imposing as his brother Esau, that he was some kind of wimp. But we know by, based on episodes in his life that he wasn't that at all. He was actually a fairly impressive physical specimen himself. He just couldn't beat his brother <laughs> in a wrestling match. Nevertheless, he wrestled with God, and this uh, pleased God because uh, it showed that Jacob knew what was valuable. His brother made uh, light of the blessing that he enjoyed as the oldest son, the rights of inheritance. Jacob knew the value of that inheritance and strove with everything that he had to obtain it, and in the end, he received it. When we think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, something to remember. We don't remember Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Jacob prevailed. 
He secured the blessing because he strove with God. He wanted what was valuable. And in this episode, we see these guys working hard to get into the presence of Christ so that this paralytic can be blessed, can be healed. You know, I think that one of the things that uh, characterizes uh, the Reformed tradition is uh, our love of doctrine. I'm into doctrine as much as the, the next Reformed guy. But I think we can lose sight of the fact that good doctrine is like a good map. The point is not necessarily to collect good maps, but actually to travel. We're told in Scripture that the Christian faith is the way. You remember that in Acts chapter 9? The Apostle Paul persecutes those who follow the way. Jesus refers to himself as the way. Six times in the New Testament, we are told that there is something called the way. Uh, the map is to be followed, not just simply admired. I don't know if you've ever come across map collectors. You know, they collect old inaccurate maps, recent maps, big maps, gold gilded maps. They've got a lot of maps, uh, these collectors, and we can be like that. We can have a lot of great books. And by the way, I think it's marvelous that people buy books. I write books. Please buy my books. <laughs> but, but you get what I'm getting at. It's, it, it, you know, we, it, we can become uh, so caught up in the analysis of the map that we forget that the map is intended to help us to, uh, take a journey, to get someplace. Uh, that's something to never lose sight of. So, Faith, in this particular episode, uh, uh, prompts action. It's because they believed that Jesus could do something for this man that they went out of their way to make sure that that man got into Jesus' presence. Think about Abraham. We think of him appropriately as the father of our faith. You know, father Abraham, he's commended for his faith. We're introduced to him in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He's given a promise by God, commanded to go, and he goes. And why does he go? He goes because he believes. He believes. The faith prompted action on his part. He didn't earn his salvation, don't get me wrong, but he believes and acts, and the same should be true for us. Now, when this uh, paralytic is placed before the Lord, and we're told that he saw their faith, he says in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. I suspect that that was not what they brought him to the Lord for. <laughs> they brought him to the Lord for healing, but this is where the Lord starts. And he sees their faith and then forgives. I think this in a real way should be uh, you know, something that helps us to see that right here in this episode there's a foreshadowing of the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is something that pleases God. And when he sees their faith, he forgives uh, this, uh, this paralytic when it comes to his sins. Now, people object, as you can see in verse 7, you know, people see that, uh, or at least believe that Jesus has arrogated to himself the authority to forgive sins. Uh, but then Jesus demonstrates that he actually does have that authority in, in, a, in, in some remarkable ways. But something to think about uh, when we reflect on this episode, who's offended when we sin? 
of course, first and foremost, is God. We see that uh, addressed directly in the 51st Psalm. You know, David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, obviously, there were other people uh, that David offended, but as the creator of those people, ultimately, every sin that we commit against another person works its way up the ladder to God himself. It's not just between you and that other person. It's always between you and God and that other person because the Lord is that person's creator just as he is your creator. So who is offended is the Lord. And what we see in Christ forgiving sins is a subtle reference to his divinity. He's implying that he is the one who is the offended party. I'm forgiving you. Your sins are forgiven, son. And then to illustrate that he has this authority, what does he say? Hey, what's harder? To just say your sins are forgiven or to say, you know, take up your bed and walk? And then he says, take up your bed and walk. And what happens? The guy takes up his bed and walks, <laughs> demonstrating the power of God is there resident in his own person. So it more or less is the good housekeeping seal of approval, you could say. This is demonstrating to everybody in the, in the room that he does have the authority to forgive sins because if he didn't, he couldn't heal the man. I think, though, there's something else at work here and something that's worth thinking about when it comes to our own lives. We all have problems. We all have problems. And we all think that we are the authority when it comes to our problems. You think you have problems? I've got problems, right? Let me tell you about my problems. And in an odd way, we not only think that we are the authority when it comes to our problems, we also think that we're the authority when it comes to solving the problem. I went to him, asked for his advice, he gave me some advice, but it was stupid advice. Well, if you're such an authority on your problem, why do you have a problem? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bit odd that we've, we feel like we have the ability to, to judge the solution as well as the problem. But I think oftentimes we really miss the deeper issue that's at work in our lives. And very often what we think is the problem is not the problem at all. Or maybe we deep down know that it's not the problem, but we don't want to deal with what we deep down know is the problem. And when you go to the Lord with your problem, be prepared to have the Lord address the real problem. Maybe that's another reason why we don't go to the Lord. Because we know that there's no fooling Him. That we're going to have to deal with the real problem, whether we want to or not. But He knows the problem. And you really should take your problem to Him. In faith, believing that He not only has the authority to address it, but can do so in a way that makes you well. Now this next episode with Levi, has a different character. Um, when we uh, encounter Levi, he's at a tax collector's booth. And in the mind of a Jew in that part of the world in the first century, that uh, demonstrated there was no doubt that he was a sinner. Um, just think about your own, maybe, feelings about the Internal Revenue Service. Now, take that and combine your convictions about used car salesmen and uh, foreign enemies and mix them all together and you've got the way a tax collector you know, was, was seen in the first century in that part of the world. 
in Judea. Because that's the way it really was. Uh, the Romans were very savvy when it came to collecting taxes. What they did is they, they uh, employed the locals. Because the locals, after all, would know uh, and have better insight into just who has it and who doesn't. And they worked on commission. This is another thing that distinguishes you know, IRS agents from uh, tax collectors in the first century. Or maybe they do work that way, I don't know. <laughs> but essentially, uh, there was a certain amount that tax collectors were supposed to collect, and then anything above and beyond that that they collected, they got to keep which is where the used car salesman illustration comes into play. These guys would often mark it up in order to receive more than they should. So these were people that uh, were resented, uh, looked down upon, feared. They were considered cheats, traitors, uh, not people who were in, in uh, you know, the right uh, re relationship to their own community. And um, what's fascinating here is that uh, what we have is an account of Jesus saying to this guy, follow me. In other words, uh, Levi doesn't volunteer. It's not as though Levi walks up to the Lord and says, hey, I really like what you're up to. Heard about the episode back there with the paralytic. Can I hang out with you a little bit? No, it's the Lord who does the choosing. Who chooses whom? In this particular story, it's very clear. It's the Lord who does the choosing. And by the way, that's the case, and it's always the case. It's the case for you. It's the case for me. We can exercise our wills, but it's only because the Lord has already been at work in our lives, influencing us and drawing us to him that makes it possible for us to choose him, which is evidence that he's done the choosing. Now, what qualifies? Levi for the job. Have you thought about this at all? Well, it's the fact that he has no qualifications. That's the point. It's as though the Lord went out and said, okay, I want to find the absolute worst example of sin I can find. I'm going to pick that guy. And the reason I'm doing so is because I want to make a point. I want to make a point, and I'm going to use this guy to make the point. So he's, have you ever thought about maybe the purpose of your life is to be an example to everybody else? <laughs> it's a, not a pleasant thought, maybe a negative example. This is what you shouldn't do. But anyway, uh, here we have an episode where there's a guy who's selected just for that reason. So he can serve as an example. And then uh, there's a caveat, though. And this is an important thing to remember. And the caveat is that uh, he doesn't stay at the booth. Sin separates us from God, and when we respond to God's call in our lives, we need to separate ourselves from sin. These things follow. And so when the Lord says, follow me, there are things that we should stop doing, things that we need to turn away from. There's a new path that we should be on, a new way to live. All of these things follow. Now, this sets up a teachable moment, as they say. Have you ever thought about that term, teachable moment? Usually a teachable moment is an unpleasant experience. <laughs> you find yourself at a point where many of your expectations, the way you look at things, are these, it's all called into question. 
and you and you realize, wow, I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. What is going on here? That's what we call a teachable moment. Most of the time we go through life, life thinking we know the answer, and that's the reason why we don't find it easy to learn. <laughs> you know, it, basically, uh, learning always follows humility. If you think you know something already, well, you're not open to new information. This reminds me of, and I've told this story many, many times, but it reminds me of when Socrates was told that he had been pronounced the wisest man in all, G all Greece by the oracle at Delphi. And so they bring him the news, and his response is this. Well, the reason why I'm the wisest man in all of Greece is because I don't know anything. In other words, I know that I don't know anything, and that's why I'm open to learn. That's really where we should be. We should bring ourselves to the Lord and say, teach me. Now, what happens uh, is, of course, we see the Lord reclining at table, surrounded by a lot of guys like Levi. Tax collectors, notorious sinners, and a bunch of scribes. So the scribes were invited to dinner, too. So they're all there. It's a mixed audience. And um, while uh, this, is, uh, this episode is sort of unfolding, uh, there are... Uh, a number of people who uh, are distressed by the fact that there are tax collectors and sinners and that Jesus is sitting there eating with them. And what you have uh, is, a, uh, you know, the Lord uh, assessing the contents of their hearts. Let me read to you this passage again to just sort of remind you what occurs. And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Have you ever noticed that Jesus uh, rarely answers questions straight, give, giving people straight answers? Instead, he tells it slant. There's a remarkable little poem, just four lines by Emily Dickinson, entitled, Tell It Slant. I want to read it to you and uh, reflect on it a little bit with you because I think that we see an ep an ev or sort of an example of that when it comes to what Jesus says here in this episode. Tell it slant, Emily Dickinson. Tell the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight. The truth, superb surprise. When you know what's coming, what do you do? You steel yourself to resist what's unpleasant to hear. But when you tell it slant, you can get around objections. And oftentimes, uh, questions are framed in such a way so as to frame you. Whenever that occurs in the Gospels, we're told that they asked that question to trap him. Remember the episode with the, with the, uh, the Pharisees and uh, the question they ask about taxes? And it's one of those moments, there's, there are some Herodians present. It's one of those moments where they, it looks like they've got him because no matter how he would respond, he's been framed. And then Jesus says, well, give me a coin. 
And so someone brings him a denarius and he says, whose image is on this? And he said, well, Caesar. And he says, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God's. And everybody marvels because he found a way to get out of the trap. But in a real way, he trapped them because they were carrying around a graven image of a God in their pocket. Very subtle dig, <laughs> but effective. Sometimes when people ask questions, they're not really honest about what they're looking for. Sometimes uh, the interlocutor is dishonest. And sometimes the way that dishonesty is expressed is by begging the question, like this. Someone walks up to you and says, are you still beating your wife? Well, what does that imply? That I have been bleeding. Now, how do you answer that? If you say yes, well, obviously that's bad. But if you say no, you imply that you were. Neither, <laughs> right? But how do you respond to a dishonest question? You've got to reframe the question. And the Lord is the master of reframing the question. Go through the Gospels sometime and just note the number of times the Lord answers a question with his own question. Turning the tables on dishonest interlocutors. People who are trying to trap him end up being trapped. Brilliant stuff. In terms of his rhetorical strategy, he is flawless. Really, what this does is it raises the question, who has the right to ask the question? Let me present to you this, this proposition. The Lord ultimately has the right to ask the questions. There are bad questions. I've taught philosophy and different subjects at the college level. And I remember back when I started out, I would say something dumb like, there's no such thing as a dumb question. But the longer I taught, the more I realized how dumb questions can be. Because very often, people aren't honest. Very often, people are trying to justify themselves and imply that you are the person with the problem. With that in mind, the Lord has set them up with the great physician statement. Let's take a look at this statement because it's a marvelous way to frame the situation. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, these guys know they're sick, but you don't. Who's worse off? The person who knows he's sick or the person who's sick who thinks he's well? That's the trap that the Lord set. And everybody in the room got it, by the way. It was, this is not a hard thing to get. Everybody knew in that room that those scribes were not as good as they were making themselves out to be. And very often in our lives, we're in the same spot. We're not as well as we make ourselves out to be. Now, that's not a reason to go around telling everybody about all of the various issues that you are struggling with. <laughs> but it is an invitation for you to take those issues to the Lord and to not lie to Him and to be honest with Him about yourself and to go to Him for healing. And the first thing that He's likely to say to you is what? Well, now you've finally owned up to it. Your sins are forgiven. Now let's deal with the problem.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you work in our lives. You work to redeem us. We're grateful that everything that needed to be done to save us has been done. Pray, though, Lord, that you would work in our lives in such a way as to help us to accept the truth that we need healing and that you are the one to give it and that it begins with a spiritual healing, with the forgiveness of our sins, and then proceeds from there. Help us, Lord, to glorify you and to live gratefully in the way. In Christ's name, amen.